Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Date Night at the Coffee Shop podcast. I'm Bart. I'm Sam. And we are excited you guys are joining us uh, today. Uh, we've got some pretty cool stuff to talk about today. Um, we're, for those of you that don't know, um, Date Night at the Coffee Shop podcast, what we do is we talk about um, any random topic that we really just feel like talking about. Um, and then we also try a different kind of coffee at the beginning of each episode, um, kind of give our, our rating, our perspective on, on how it is. And, um, so hopefully you guys are using this to branch out and try some new coffees. Um, we, I hope, we hope you guys have, have turned, turned on to some new ones. Thanks to this. Um, yeah, we know we definitely have been turned on to some new, some great coffees since we started this. Um, and we're really excited about that. Um, today we've got a pretty cool topic. We're talking about the ocean. Yes. Yeah. So pretty excited about this. There's there's just a whole lot to go on with it. Um, our coffee of choice today is um, a brand called Peace Coffee. Um, it's an organic fair trade coffee. Um, you can find it at Target. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen it anywhere else, so I'm not sure if it's a specific t- if it's specifically only sold at Target or what, but uh, Peace Coffee, it's... Uh, really cute. Yeah, it's, it's got a nice nice looking bag. Um, this blend is called their Tree Hugger Signature Blend. Um, so you're kind of going in with that hippie theme. Uh, it's a dark roast. Uh, it says that it's... it. The bag mentions that it's nutty and adventurous. Like me. Yeah, yeah, very much like you. Um... <laughs> But yeah, so we're, we're excited to try this one again. This is Peace Coffee Tree Hugger Blend. And this is a um, found, dark roast. Yes, this is a dark roast. Uh, so let's go ahead and let's try this. So smelling it, it smells it smells really good. It smells kind of sweet. It does. All right, here we go. First sip. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, it is good. It's a little bit acidic. But it's really well balanced. Yeah, it is a little acidic. I do taste that nutty kind of flavor. It doesn't have like the typical chocolatey kind of notes that, that most dark, dark roasts have. Yeah. Um, but it 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 is it's really good. It's it's balanced. Um, it's smooth. You definitely taste it more like in the back than you do in the front. Yeah. This is really really. Yeah, good. I like I like that. So again, that's Peace Coffee Tree Hugger Blend, and that's their dark roast. Um, highly recommend. What would you give it? Um, I'd give it a six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd probably say that's about, about right. I'd probably give it a six and a half. Mm-hmm. It's really um, good though. Yeah. I like it. It's, it's good. I'm curious though, if I would give it, you and I both would give it a higher rating if we had found, been able to find it in whole bean and ground it ourselves. That's true. So they, we only found it pre-ground. Um, so I mean, grinding fresh coffee beans makes a big difference so i'm sure that it would have been it would probably have raised my rating if mm-hmm. we if we had it fresh if it if we had it in whole bean yeah um i'd be interested to see if, if they come out with that maybe yeah. we can check their website and see yeah i definitely didn't see any at target so yeah. but it's really good i do like it yeah that's good um again so our topic today is the ocean mm-hmm. um subtitled the space of the earth yes um this <laughs> was kind of when i threw out this topic that's kind of <laughs> we we decided on this shortly after doing this space episode 
Um, so I kind of threw out this topic as, as it being the, the space of the earth, uh, largely because most of it, um, a lot of it is, is largely unexplored. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually don't know a whole lot about, you know, the, the, the depths of the ocean, yes. um, which is cool. So we're, we're going to talk about it today, um, talk about some exploration um, and then just some general facts and stuff. Um, hope you guys enjoy this. So go ahead and tell me what's what's the deal with the ocean. Okay, so I have it broken down into a few different segments and as usual, go over the history of ocean exploration. Sound good? Yeah. Okay. So the I got this timeline mainly from seasky.org and nationalgeographic.org. Okay. Um so basically, so this I found super interesting going over the history of like how we've got to be so ocean obsessed. Mm-hmm. Um, so about 4,000 BC, ancient Egyptians developed the first sailing vessels. Right. So this would have been um, sailboats that they used to, to sail on the, the Nile, the Nile mm-hmm. River. And like the um, mouth of the Nile right like there. Mm-hmm. Trade and yep. fishing yep. and exactly. stuff like that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and then 1,000 BC, the Greek poet Homer mentions sponge fishermen who dive as deep as 100 feet by holding onto a heavy rock. I've heard of I've heard of this before. Okay, so this is really cool. So to compensate for the increasing pressure on their ears, they would pour oil in their ear canals and take a mouthful of oil before diving. Once they got to the bottom, they would spit out the oil, cut as many sponges free from the bottom as their breath would allow, and then they are pulled back to the surface by a rope. So I've I've heard that about the oil thing about putting it in the ears. What does it? What does taking a mouthful of oil do? Probably to keep the the pressure. So it like instead of it keeps you from spitting it out. I would assume it keeps you from because like you spit it out at the bottom. Like it's kind of something to hold there instead of like what normal people do these days, and how you hold your breath so long underwater is that you like you let it out slowly. Mm-hmm. So the oil would is probably there to like help you keep it as long mm. as possible you know i would be interested to see like what scientifically it does if it has any kind of like actual effect yeah but, i don't know it's really um, that was really interesting though like the just the ear thing was that just creeps me out a little bit but um in in 325 bc alexander the great used a crude diving bell for combat divers um that same year the greek astronomer and geographer Pi. Pythias, yeah. yeah. Pythias sails north from the Mediterranean and reaches the coast of England. He developed methods for using the sun and the North Star to determine latitude. Okay, so that kind of developed into what became a lot of like the navigational methods mm-hmm. for, for sailing and things like that. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about this diving bell. Yes, diving bells so, are awesome. It's um, so cool. So for those of you that don't know, it's it's this thing that they would they would carry it out on their ships. And it is shaped like just like this giant bell mm-hmm. that's probably six or eight feet tall, um, and they would just they would hoist it out over the the ocean mm-hmm. and just drop it down to make sure that it was they would have to make sure that it was flat and it would catch air, air. Mm-hmm. and then but it was still so heavy that it would still be weighted down mm-hmm. and somebody would be in it yeah somebody would be in that pocket of air that's inside that bell mm-hmm. and so that's what they would use for for diving mm-hmm. so they would kind of swim around and then they could come back up to that bell and get some more air because mm-hmm. it's lowered down so this is different than a bathysphere a bathysphere which we t- we talk about it a little bit a bathysphere is actually um a very crude 
submarine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes. Are we going to get to that later in here? Yes, we'll get All to right. it a little let's, bit later. Let's save that for for then. But diving bells are... It's, it's pretty cool because, like, you don't... A, a person is still just, like, there swimming. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of come back to that bell for some air. Mm-hmm. And they've, they've modernized over time to where they're not, like, these massive bells. They're, you know, like, they became just, like, little helmets almost. Yeah. Like... But yeah, they're really, really interesting. Yeah. For those of you that may be video game buffs, um, you probably would recognize these from, um, if you played any of the Assassin's Creed games, uh, the Assassin's Creed Black Flag, um, where you're a pirate, uh, they use diving bells on that, so you kind of get an idea of how they actually work. They're really cool. It's really cool looking. Um, so this one, actually, the one that Alexander the Great used, it's not in my notes, but it was, it is on the source. Um, it has like state, like glass on the side so that you can see out. And so like, Hmm. if you were just using it for like exploratory purposes, like you could just go to the bottom and like, look instead of getting out of the bell and like getting back in kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Really, really cool. Okay, so in 150 BC, the Greek astronomer and geographer uh, Ptolemy produces a map of the ancient world that includes the continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa, as well as the surrounding oceans. This early map is one of the first known to include the lines of latitude and longitude. Okay, so uh, Greek astronomer Ptolemy. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the same Ptolemy from Egypt, right? I think that, so. That became yeah. one of one of the, the rulers of Egypt. They mm-hmm. kind of it kind of signaled that shift between the old kingdom of Egypt and then the the Greek rule. Yeah. Um, Okay. Yep. Yep. And the, it was lost, but we'll get to when it was rediscovered. It was lost for a really long time. This map. Mm hmm. Okay. Yeah. But it's like, but they ended up finding it. Mm hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that's cool. In 200 AD, artwork on Peruvian pottery shows divers wearing goggles and holding fish. Huh? Mm -hmm. So they had goggles Two in two hundred, the year two hundred. Yeah, that's crazy. Yep, yep. That's so. Yeah, that fa- that's fascinating. In the year nine hundred, the Vikings began to explore and colonize Iceland, Greenland, and Newfoundland. They are among the first to use the North Star to determine their latitude. Well, hold up, because we already. No, but they're the first explorers to like. Oh, like, uh, okay. So yeah. to like determine where they are. Right. Okay. Right. Like, yeah, this that dude, uh, Pythias, was like, "Hey, what's up? This this is why this is how I'm using it." And then the Vikings were like, "Hey, we're going to use it too." Right. They're okay. like, "Yeah." Um, in the year 1002, Norse explorer Leif Erikson becomes the first European to land in North America. He calls the new land. Vinland, B-I-N, and establishes a Norse settlement in what is now northern tip of Newfoundland in Canada. Yes, so this was actually when yeah, when um, America was discovered yes. by Europeans. Europeans. Yes, correct. Um, not Columbus. Definitely not Columbus. He <laughs> showed up quite a bit later. Yes. Um, fun fact, Newfoundland doesn't like to be called Canadian. They like to be their own kind of thing. Even though they're in Canada. Okay. Anyways. Um, so in the year 1405, the Chinese send out seven voyages consisting of over 300 ships and a combined crew of nearly 37,000. These voyages are designed to extend Chinese influence and impress their neighboring states. Economic pressures back home put an end to these extensive voyages only after a short time. Interesting. That That's quite a, um, quite a feat, though. That's a lot... 
yeah. of people to send out. Absolutely. It's a pretty big voyage. And then in 1410, Ptolemy's famous map of the world is rediscovered and published once again after the European Crusades um, take over the... Um, the Holy Land was this during yes. the Holy yeah. the Crusades? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep, yep. Interesting. So they found Ptolemy's map mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Huh. I wonder how it got there. Well, it probably had to do with... Because I think it was in Alexandria. I think that's where it was. Uh, I think okay. that's where his map was. And then, um, and that makes sense because it's right there close to Egypt. Or was. You know what I mean. In 1492, this is when the Spanish explorer Christopher Columbus sets out on his historic voyage across the Atlantic Ocean in search of a passage to China and India. Right. Instead... So, just to put that into perspective, <laughs> that's almost 500 years later. Yes. Instead, he finds North and South America. Right. So, again, he was looking for China and India, which is why when he got here, the he saw the peoples. natives and yeah. he called them Indians because yeah. he thought he was an Indian. Yeah. A lot of you probably know that already, but that's that's where the name comes from. Absolutely. Uh, but, again, almost 500 years after the new land was, yeah. the new world was actually discovered. Yeah. Um, and then in 1498, the Portuguese explorer uh, Vasco da Gama sails his ships around the Cape of Good Hope on the southern tip of Africa and becomes the first European to reach India by boat. Okay. I don't know if this so sounds familiar to Columbus you. did what Columbus was trying to do. Yes. I don't know if any of this sounds familiar to you, but like this kind of stuff, I had a really good history teacher when I was younger. And so I remembered when I was going back over this, I was like, oh, I remember this. I yeah. remember this. Um, hey, Miss Cherub. Um, And then in 1519, Ferdinand Magellan and his fleet depart Portugal to begin a voyage of discovery. The fleet would become the first to sail around the world. He died before he could see that. Like, Magellan died before he could see that. He was uh, killed by indigenous people on, uh, I don't remember what island, by poisoned arrows. Oh, what a bummer. Yeah, but they did it. They became the first to sail around the world. In 1578, an English mathematician named William Bourne draws up the first known plans for an underwater boat. These plans call for a leather-covered wooden frame craft that would be rowed from the inside. Interesting. So the the precursor to this would be the bathysphere. And it's basically just a just a barrel that they would lower down beside the boat for right. you to like look out of like a barrel with like glass on it mm-hmm. um and that's a bathysphere it's like oh cool like we're just gonna look and see it's not like movable or anything like that so that's right so it's still just like attached to the boat right yeah or to the ship and they just kind of lower it down so you can get a view of what's beneath mm-hmm. the water yep okay yeah um and but so this one <laughs> the um uh the first submarine this, this one yeah. It's underwater boat. You can actually, like, it's not attached. You can actually, like, row it, row it around. It. Mm-hmm. Covered in leather. So it's a wooden frame covered in leather. That does not seem safe. It couldn't have gone very deep. Yeah, probably not. Well, we'll get to it. So in 1620, Dutch physician Cornelius Drebbel builds the world's first submarine. It's based off of these kind of plants. It says the boat is made of wood, reinforced with iron, and covered with leather. Drebbel makes several trips in his submarine in the Thames. Thames. Hmm. But and I put here. Let's be honest. The the Thames isn't yeah, that's, that deep. That's it's not... like fifteen to twelve feet is what the the note, the timeline says. Oh really? Yeah. So it's not far and it's not deep, but he it's based off of the plans from this. Uh... But good start. Yeah, exactly. 
1715. Okay, I said this while I was writing my notes. Chevalier. Chevalier. De Beauvais. De Beauvais. Uh, a guard in the French Navy develops a waterproof suit with lead shoes. Air is supplied from the surface by two leather tubes fastened to the helmet. These are awesome. I know. How these, cool these is this? These divers, these diving suits. Oh, my god! I always thought this was like a super cool looking suit. And it's like he literally has on lead shoes. Yeah. Like that's... Lead shoes and then like this big metal helmet. Oh, so cool. Okay, so... I kind of want one. I know, right? So, in 1785, Benjamin Franklin writes a letter to a scientific colleague in France that announces the discovery of the Gulf Stream. Uh, The letter also touches on a wide range of maritime subjects, such as ship propulsion methods, hull design, and the causes of disasters at sea. Interesting. Benjamin Franklin had his hands in everything. Yeah, he really did. I, I didn't realize he was, like, so eclectic in his studies and... Nuts. Yeah. Stuff. Um, in 1800, Robert Fulton, inventor of the steamboat, builds an early submarine called the Nautilus. Hmm. This cigar-shaped craft is made of wood over iron plates and used in. Um, it uses a horizontal rudder to control the up and down movement of the submarine. The rudder system is still in use today. Okay. So is this? Um, is this Nemo? Yeah, that's kind of what I was was wondering. Is this like the inspiration for the the story of Nemo? I think and so. His submarine. I think so. Okay. I would assume so. It sounds a lot like it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's even got the same name, the Nautilus. Yeah. So that's interesting. In eighteen oh seven, President Thomas Jefferson signs a law that esta- uh, establishes the United States Coast Survey. It's an organization that studies the eastern coast of the U.S. and returns data about tides, tidal currents, the seafloor characteristics, and the depth and physical features of nearshore waters. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Didn't realize anything like that was going on that early. Yeah, isn't that cool? Um, in 1825, William H. James designs a self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, or scuba. In James's design, the divers wear a helmet and carries a supply of compressed air in a cast iron belt fastened around the waist. So this is the first scuba equipment. Right. That seems cool. Yeah. Kind of seems like it would weigh you down, though. Yeah. But I guess that's kind of the point. So better than lead shoes, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely better than, than lead shoes with a, with a water hose. attached for for air Um, Um, so you just kind of carry around this tank with you mm -hmm. rather than being tethered to wherever the source is yep okay cool on january 3rd 1840 sir james clark ross conducts the first open ocean water sounding in 2425 fathoms which is 14,450 feet in the south atlantic ocean the sounding is taken using a traditional method of lowering a hemp rope over the side of the ship and sounding is basically what it what it sounds like but um it's seeing how deep the water is okay yeah it's like kind of measuring how deep it goes that isn't that's not what that sounds like (laughs) why is it called sounding i don't know okay i have no idea but so basically what they're doing here is they're just measuring how deep it actually is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where the bottom is. Okay. Um, and it's, I, yeah. Huh. Um. How do they know when it gets to the bottom? I don't know. I would assume it stops. The rope stops. Going anywhere. Like you can tell. Yeah. I guess if it's just falling on its own and then it gets down to the bottom. Maybe, it kinda, maybe it's strong enough. It kind of holds itself up. Um, 
1843, British naturalist Edward Forbes states his belief that life cannot exist below 300 fathoms, which is 1,800 feet, um, in the deep sea. This declaration begins a 20-year debate about the possible existence of a lifeless zone in the ocean known as the Azoic Zone. So, I mean, obviously, we later discover that that's completely untrue. Yeah. Um, 1,800 feet, I mean, that's not very far down. Yeah. I mean, as far as, like, some of these crazy fish that we've seen. Of course, I mean, in 1843, I suppose they didn't get to see anything like that. Right. Um, Also, in 1849, the Organization Coast Survey that we talked about a second ago, while looking at the Gulf Stream, discovers the continental shelf break and the continental slope using the sounding materials and stuff right. like that. Interesting. Um, which I just imagine that to be kind of terrifying for these people because, like, they're just lowering a rope and then all of a sudden it doesn't stop where they think it does because, like, the break is like, oh, there's there's nothing there anymore. And it's just right. kind of like, oh, wait, where yeah, did it go? Yeah, and it just drops off so suddenly. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, I, they would be like, wait a minute, what? I just, I couldn't imagine being on the survey team being all like, Oh, yeah. this is where this is where it's supposed to stop. Yeah, you but know? then you realize it's so much deeper than you expected. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Okay, so in 1853, Louis Portales, yeah, yeah, in the U.S. Coast Survey, examines sounding operations and discovers indi- indications of life in depths of over a thousand fathoms, which is six thousand feet. Which blows Forbes' theory out of the water. Right. So just completely destroyed what that other guy was saying. Yeah. In 1857, James Aldean, commanding officer of the Coast Survey... Alden. Oh, Alden. Um, Commanding officer of the Coast Survey Steamer Active discovers a deep submarine valley, or gulch, in the center of Monterey Bay off the coast of California. Alden had discovered the first known deep sea canyon, now known as the Monterey Canyon. This canyon extends 95 miles into the Pacific Ocean and reaches a depth of 1,100, nope, 11,800 feet. Wow. Yeah. So this canyon extends 90, so is the canyon itself 95 miles long? Yes. Wow. That's crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. It's really, really cool. In 1861, the United States Navy contracts um, French immigrant Brutus Villelroy Villelroy. to design a submarine. The vessel is built by the firm of Neffy and Levy and is made of iron with small circular plates of glass uh, on top for light. Known as the Alligator, the sub is powered by 16 hand-powered paddles protruding from the side. It was built for use in the Civil War, but was never used in battle. Could you imagine? You were paddling this iron thing. Like, that's intense. Yeah. This kind of reminds me, if any of you guys have seen the movie The Wild Wild West, of that, they they have, like, this big iron submarine thing. Oh, that That they didn't use. Um, Or that they they tried to use or something. I, I was actually thinking of the movie Sahara. With the steamer ship that winds up oh, in Africa. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was cool. Yeah, but really, I think really that cool. was a little bit bigger scale, though. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in 1868, Scottish naturalist Charles Wyville Thompson, Thompson dredges the ocean floor and discovers life as deep as 2,400 fathoms, which is um, 14,400 feet. This evidence finally disproves Forbes' theory of a lifeless zone below 300 fathoms. I mean... Why does this one finally 
disprove it? Like, why didn't... Well, because the sound, the other one with the sounding, it was just like, oh, that, that looks like an animal did that. Or that looks like... Oh, but so with this, like he actually theory. dredges the floor and right. finds probably okay. species, finds stuff. Right. Animals. Okay. Um, in 1882, the U.S. Fisheries Commission steamer Albatross... Albatross begins operation. The Albatross is the first vessel built by any government for the sole purpose of oceanographic oceanographic research. This iron-hulled twin-screw steamer would conduct serious marine research for nearly 40 years until it's finally decommissioned in 1921. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, 1912, Scripps Institute of Scripps is one of the world's leading marine research centers and is located in La Jolla, California, which is just north of San Diego. (coughs) Excuse me. My allergies. Um, That same year, on April 15th, a Titanic sank after striking an iceberg. Over 1,500 passengers lose their lives during one of the worst peacetime maritime disasters in history. This tragedy leads to a concerted effort to devise an acoustic means of discovering objects in the water ahead of a moving vessel. Hmm, Interesting. Yeah. So I actually read something about the Titanic the other day um, that uh, about the, like, the, uh, the exhaust... I forgot what they're like the little chimney Steam stacks. Yeah, the the stacks up yeah. top. It had four. Uh huh. But one of them was actually fake. Really? Yeah. It, they only used three for exhaust from the engines, and the fourth one was mainly there just to make the boat look bigger. Are you serious? Yeah, they used it to, um, for like there was like some smoking rooms down there, and then. There was something else on there, but it, I mean, they, they used it to just like for exhaust from like other things, but it wasn't it wasn't like an actual exhaust from port from the engine. That is it so was, It was mostly there just to make the boat look bigger than it was. Huh, that's really cool. Yeah. I just find it really interesting that in 1912, like, um, oceanography becomes like affiliated with a school. And so it becomes more, I don't want to say more legitimate, but in a way it becomes more like academic and like, oh, we're going to study this in like an academic way and in that same year the titanic sank like i just think that's so interesting like the two parallels of just how stuff works it's really interesting Mm -hmm. in 1941 during world war ii electronic navigation systems are developed for precision bombing a few years later the coast guard and geodetic geodetic survey conducts its first hydrographic surveys using these systems research during the world during the war leads to many new tools for ocean exploration so basically so they they made these navigations so they could bomb stuff and then later they were like oh we could use this to for the ocean yeah (laughs) yeah much like a lot of our advancements it's like how can we kill people with this thing and then then what else can we after we make it what else can we do with it right exactly um, in 1943, underwater explorers Jacques Cousteau and Emile Gognon developed the first modern scuba system. They modify a breathing regulator to create the aqualung. Um, this groundbreaking invention allows divers to stay underwater for extended periods and more effectively explore the ocean realm. This single event revolutionizes the science of underwater exploration. Interesting. So uh-huh. I guess, yeah, they could stay under there a lot longer and go deeper than, yep. than previous... <clears throat> Explorers. It's pretty cool. Um, in 1951, the British ship Challenger 2 bounces sound waves off the ocean bottom and locates what appears to be 
the sea's deepest point. Nearly seven miles down, it is subsequently called the Challenger Deep. This site is known today as uh, Marina's Marianas Marian- Trench. Yeah, Marianas Trench. If you could put the mount, put Mount Everest on the ocean floor in this trench, its summit would lie about a mile below the ocean surface. Right. So even the, the highest point, Mount Mount Everest, is still about a mile short of reaching the top. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. Really, really cool. Um, on January twenty third, nineteen sixty, Jacques Picard descend. Uh, and a team of three other people descend into the ocean uh, to a depth of nearly seven miles, the deepest ocean dive at that time. Do we know what they used? Like how they got down there? Uh, I think it was a submarine of some kind. Just like a, a modern yeah. submarine? Yeah. Okay. Um, so in 1962, the first underwater habitat is made and used. Um, several experiments are conducted whereby people live in underwater habitats. The researchers leave the habitat for exploration and return again for food, sleep, and relaxation. So this is kind of like... Kind of like a space station. Yep, exactly. But, <laughs> so it reminds me of the old cartoon Sea Lab 2020. Yep. Um, so, so it's like that. Yes, and we'll get to it. That's awesome. We'll get to it, trust me. Um, in October of 1970, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is established. Um, the US, this U.S. government agency is responsible for all U.S. weather and climate forecasting, monitoring and archiving the ocean and atmospheric data, management of marine fisheries and mammals, mapping and charting all of U.S. waters, coastal zone management, and research and development in all of these areas. Wow. Yeah, so they control the waters. Pretty much <laughs> and all And the space. Of it. Yeah, they control everything. It seems like a lot of... A, a lot of responsibility on this one... Organization. Organization, yeah. Yeah. Um, their website is pretty cool, though. It's really, really informative. <clears throat> I recommend anybody go check it out. Okay, so on September 1st of 1985, the Titanic is found by Dr. Robert Ballard. The wreck is found 12,500 feet, which is two and a half miles. Um, it, it's in two and a half miles of water, about 375 miles off the coast of Newfoundland. So it was really close. Like, 370 miles. Relatively. Like, well, yeah. Like... <laughs> That's, re- I mean. I knew it was coming from, like, I mean, I, I knew, like, they left from what, from London? I don't know if it was London or New York. I can't remember where they left from. And they were going from, they were coming to. New York? New York, I believe. Yeah. Um, so, I, it's just crazy how how far north it was mm-hmm. to me, I guess. And it's only found course, in two and a half miles of water. Yeah. Beneath two and a half miles. Like, that's. It doesn't seem like a long distance. I know in feet, like it's a really long time, but that's a long way. But um, So in 1993, Undersea Laboratory Aquarius begins operation off the coast of Key Largo, Florida. Aquarius resembles an underwater apartment and lab that can accommodate six-person teams during 10-day missions. Scientists live, eat, and sleep in the habitat and work outside for six to nine hours a day. Aquarius operates until 1996 and helps revolutionize the study of coral reefs. So it's only operational for three years. Mm-hmm. Is it still there? I wonder. I don't I know. I want to go there. Yes. Oh my gosh, that would be so is, cool. That'd be cool. They need to make like Airbnb. Hotel- yeah, they need to make like hotels that are underwater like that. That'd be oh, awesome. that would be so cool. But I wonder. See, we'll get to it. Yeah, I just wonder what they would do with their um, waste. I don't know. It's a good question. You know. Um, Okay, so in 2010, the first ever global census of marine life is completed. This 10-year project involves 
2,700 scientists from 80 nations. The census reveals what, where, and how much lives and hides in global oceans and is made available in an online directory that allows anyone to map global addresses of species. Oh, that's cool. That is really awesome. Okay. In July 2012, a Japanese expedition and film crew captures the first video of a giant live um, giant squid. Um, in its natural environment. This elusive creature is previously only seen when dead specimens wash ashore or are caught in fishing nets. The squid captured in the video measures only nine feet, which I find hilarious, only nine feet, um, in length, which is actually relatively small. Giant squid can grow to over 60 feet in length, which is terrifying. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So I remember this. I I remember when this happened, Mm -hmm. when they found these, um, you know, they got the video of this. But I didn't. I guess I didn't really realize how significant it was. I just thought it was cool because it was like, oh, we've got this video, but we hadn't actually seen a live we, we'd one. We'd never seen a live one before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's crazy. But even then, it was still kind of a small one. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Like that. I mean, nine feet is still like really like that's that's a story. Yeah. Like that's really tall. Um. Okay, so in 2017, Seabed 2030, an international scientific team, announces a plan that aims to map the entire floor of the Earth's oceans by 2030, using over a dozen tracking ships. The effort, Seabed 2030, will fill in the considerable gaps in our knowledge of the massive region of which less than 15% has been mapped in detail. Less than some planets in our solar system. Right. So that's that was kind of my point earlier. That so we have only really mapped out fifteen percent of the ocean floor. Yep. Um, which is not much at all. But this is awesome that they've got this team that's that's doing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So when they complete it, that's going to be amazing. Yeah. We'll have a detailed map of like what the. And I'm curious as to like what we'll get into the facts a little bit later, but I'm curious as to what artifacts they're going to find in mapping and like what yeah. civilizations and stuff like that, like how this is going to help. They're going to find Atlantis. <gasps> yes. Which would be awesome. So cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk some trash. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So do you know what garbage patches are? Um, relatively. Um, so like this is basically areas where like a lot of, most of the trash that gets dumped into the ocean, like the way the tides work and stuff like that, it, it kind of bunches of the trash together in like one kind of, or in like certain locations. Yep, for sure. So garbage patches, you're exactly right, are <clears throat> large areas, excuse me, of the ocean where litter, fishing gear, and other debris, known as marine debris, um, collects. They're formed by rotating ocean currents called, I think this is Gears, although I kind of want to say it's years, like Euro, but I don't really know. G-Y-R-E-S. I mean, I would just call it gyres. Gyres? Oh, that's a good point. Um, you can think of them as big whirlpools that pull objects in. The gyres pull debris into one location, uh, often the gyres center, forming patches. The most famous of these patches is called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It is located, which every time I say garbage patch, it reminds me of Cabbage Patch Kids. (laughs) (laughs) Garbage Patch Kids. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, it's located um, in the North Pacific uh, gyre between Hawaii and California. 
Patch is misleading nickname, causing many to believe that these are islands of trash. Instead, the debris is spread across the surface of the water and from the surface all the way to the ocean floor. The debris ranges in size from large abandoned fishing nets to tiny microplastics, which are plastic pieces smaller than five millimeter in size. It makes it possible to sail through some areas of the Great Pacific garbage patch and see very little to no debris. So, right, so most of it is kind of dispersed all the way down to the bottom. Right, and some of this is like wild, like wildlife. I mean, like um, like vegetation. You know what I mean? Like some yeah. of it is, but not all of it. Most of it's just like waste and stuff. Yeah. Um, but this idea, so first of all, how big is this Great Pacific garbage patch? Do I know? Uh, I don't know the specific because there are quite a, there are a few of them. I think there are like five. Yes. Let's find out specifics size. Google it. But also I want to touch back. So, okay. According to Google, it's about 1.6 million square kilometers. What? So, I mean, that's that's huge. Now, granted, a lot of that, so square kilometers, I'm wondering if that's including like... Like cubic, like depth? Well, no, because that would, that be, would cube. be cubic kilometers. So, yeah, that's that's an enormous amount of space. Yeah. Um, wow. But it's not like a big pile of trash, like yeah. a lot of people think. It's basically just, it's under the water. And because of the microplastics, it's like, you can't see it. So, or like you can't see that part of it. Well, yeah, a lot of that you can't see, but mostly you can't <clears> see it because it's like just first throughout the depths mm-hmm. of, of the, the water there. Uh, but, so you brought up this point about how um, how it, the, the term is misleading because it's not, people think that it's an island of trash and it's not. But what if they made it an island of trash? Could we do that and then like... Like, I don't know, collect it all up somehow, like, stick it all together, and then, <laughs> so, like, build on it or something. Actually use it. Right. Use it as Make a Make a new mass. island. <laughs> so, the problem... There's got to be enough trash in the ocean to do that. Oh, absolutely. Well, here's the thing. There... I... I could... There could be a whole topic, like, a whole episode on oceanic pollution, right? So... Yes and no, but the problem is that while you can fish out, like, fishing nets, you know, like, you can fish out the bigger debris, and you can remove that from these um, garbage patches, the problem is the microplastics and things like that. Like, it's almost impossible to get rid of those. Right. So, like, while you could, like, bunch up all of the big stuff you would still have the problem of the microplastics which are like hard to you know i mean five millimeter smaller than five millimeter like that's tiny yeah i mean you could get most of it though with a fine enough net i think there was there was rumors i can't remember i think it was in 2019 so i think it was last year there was this thing that was supposed to be sent out on the ocean to like get everything up from the garbage patch and then it broke within like the first day Mm. And everyone was like, we knew it because there's a bunch of trash in the ocean. Yeah. So, yeah. <clears throat> it's just sad because I love the ocean. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, um, anyways, enough about, uh, enough trash talk. Let's get to some cool ocean facts. You ready? Yeah. Okay. So, the difference between an ocean and a sea is depth, size, and marine life. So, what... What kind of marine life? Is it like just like 
So from what I read... Like the fact that there are whales or something like that? <laughs> so the, what I read was basically the ocean, and we'll get into it a little bit in the next fact, is like the ocean is bigger. Mm-hmm. So the concentration of wildlife is smaller. So there's technically more wildlife in a sea. In a in one area. Correct. Okay. Yeah. That's an interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, so technically there is only next fact, there's only one global ocean that covers seventy one percent of the earth. It's divided geographically into five basins the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian, Arctic, and the Antarctic. Huh. So so technically, I mean they they are classifying it classifying it as just one big ocean there's mm-hmm. just like these separate parts mm-hmm. which i mean makes sense because it is all connected mm-hmm. and then it's just cool when you think about it like that mm-hmm. and then with seas like some of them do have an outlet to the ocean and some of them don't so they're just like big lakes mm, yeah um there are 50 seas on the globe oh, by the way um the majority of life on earth is aquatic 94 percent of the earth's living species that exist are within the ocean so I knew that a lot that, you know, the vast majority was, but 94% of all living beings on Earth mm-hmm. reside under the water. Yep. That is crazy. I love it. It's so cool. Um, the world's longest mountain chain is underwater. Earth's longest chain of mountains, the Mid-Ocean Ridge, is almost entirely beneath the ocean, stretching across a distance of 65,000 kilometers. It's said that this mountain chain is less explored than the surface of Venus or Mars, which makes sense because the ocean in general is less explored um, right. than, than the, you know, space or whatever. So um, you say that most of it is under the water. Where did it start from? Um, mid-ocean ridge. Where is it? Where is it? Uh, let's see. I wonder if it's connected to... Um, Excuse me. Which Mid-Atlantic Ridge? Where is it? Where is it? It doesn't say where it is. Uh, spreading. I don't know. Huh. Well, this is less than more than less than unhelpful, huh? Yeah. Um. Talks about the size, but not. I can't find where, where it actually it is. is. Um, the sea is home to the world's largest living structure, the Great Barrier Reef. Measuring around 2,600 kilometers, it can even be seen from the moon. Now, that seems crazy. Right? Like, How I knew cool it was huge, but seen from the moon, that's awesome. I love the ocean. But, I mean, it's kind of depressing, though, because it, most of it's, like, dying right Well, now, it's it? actually, the Great Barrier Reef is doing well, but coral reefs in general are not doing great because of the pollution. Mm. So I did read a fact about coral reefs. I don't know if I put it in here, but it said that like, they're like, Hey, they're not doing so great. We need to take care of our oceans, but the great barrier reef is doing all right. Right. Still. But most of it is from like, from like <clears throat> rising temperatures. Though, mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. it's like creating problems with yes. the wildlife. Correct. Um, 90% of all volcanic activity on earth happens in the ocean. I knew that. How um, cool is that? That seems pretty cool. And if you've ever seen any videos of like these oh, underwater so eruptions, cool. they look awesome. Yes. Um, oceanic life uh, life forms began 3 billion years ago in comparison to land-based creatures that appeared only 400 million years ago. Right. So 
uh, everything was kind of swimming around for a couple billion years, and then <laughs> and then tadpoles then happened. Then we finally sprouted legs, <laughs> and, um, and now we've. This is where we are. And now we're podcasting. Yes. What a great what a great run. Um, and destroying where we came from. Right. Yes. Um, the U.S. Army admitted that it secretly dumped 64 million pounds of nerve and mustard gas agents into the ocean from 1944 to 1970, along with 400,000 chemical-filled bombs and made more than 500 tons, or yeah, and more than 500 tons of radioactive waste. So they just like dumped the stuff into the ocean. Yep. Just willy-nilly. Yep. This is the start of a sci-fi movie. Yeah, I mean, this is this is where, like, Godzilla and Swamp Thing comes from. Um, yeah. But at least they admitted it, right? Right? I mean, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't at the time. I know. Like, how? I just... That blows my mind. Like, yeah. Um, so there are kelp forests under the ocean that can rival even the lushest of forests on land. Kelp can grow up to two feet per day. It's the bamboo of the sea. That's cr- I mean, that's even faster than bamboo. But it's the bamboo of the sea. Yeah. It really I mean, that's is. That's crazy. I, <laughs> if you've ever seen some of the, it looks terrifying to yeah. me, these, like, kelp forests. I've seen some photos of them, and it's just, like, dark and ominous, and you just feel like there's some big... There's something in there. Yeah. No, it's, thank it you. It looks crazy. No, thank you. And, th- I mean, there's probably not. Like, honestly, it would probably be too, like... Don't, you don't say that, because there's probably something in there. I mean, there's probably some things in there, like, smaller things, but nothing really super big but we don't know would want would would be comfortable swimming around in there because there's not any room that's true um so the the, these forests can actually grow on the ocean floor um 150 feet deep and reach the surface of the water that's crazy these trees these kelp plants are 150 feet tall yeah that's enormous that's whoa that's scary no thank you um, so vampire squid live in Monterey Bay. They're called vampire not because they drink blood, unfortunately. Um, they only subsist on plankton, but because of their high intelligence, they've been known to create complex geometrical patterns on the ocean floor. Okay, so I just don't understand this term. So why are they using the term vampire just to, dis- to, to describe to... smart? Right. I don't know. That doesn't make the any sense. The person who named these squid were probably vampires. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, that would make sense, and then they would because they think that they're the smartest beings. So, but how cool is that that they can make like patterns? They make art, like in the like in the sand or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, that's cool. That is I, so I see interesting. Some of this. Um, definitely, we'll we'll Google some. Seventy um, percent of the oxygen we breathe is produced in the oceans. How? Well, our dear oceanic plants, mainly phytoplankton, kelp, and um, algal plankton, are hard at work photosynthesizing it for us. Right. So I did know about that, that most of it, most of the oxygen came from, from the ocean. But I didn't know that most of it was made, that it was made from, like, plankton. I just assumed it was just kelp. Yeah. And, like, seaweed. How cool is that, though? That is, that's crazy. Um, the first ocean to be crossed by an airplane was the Atlantic. It was also the first ocean to be crossed by a ship. That makes sense, because it's like the, the shortest distance, I guess, from the most civilized nations were like, yeah. at the time. Yeah. Or right there, you know, on that, that western western side of Europe. And then just coming this way. Yeah. Okay, so you ready Does for Does that one? include, so... 
Was that Amelia Earhart? Or, uh, or, or do we not get to count her since she got lost? <laughs> I think she ran off with her co-pilot. Anyways, um, I don't know. Probably, no, because I think hers was the first quote-unquote, like, solo. Oh, okay. Even though it wasn't really solo. But, um, okay. So, according to the U.S. Census Bureau Statistical Abstract of the United States in 2012, 58.67 million people went to the beach in 2010. Wow. Yeah. Just in that one year. Yep. I mean, I guess that makes sense, but... It kind of seems crazy that there is enough room for all of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Um, coastal. I'm pretty sure most of that was Panama City. Though. Oh yeah, for sure. Coastal states receive about 85 percent of the tourist-related revenues in the U.S. It's estimated that some 180 million Americans annually make two billion visits to ocean, gulf, and inland beaches. More than twice as many visitors that go to the national to all of the National Park Service properties during that same period. Wow. That's that's crazy. Yep. So like, beaches are cool. I like I like going to the beach. I want to go to but the beach like, so bad. Maybe maybe go somewhere else too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's, I do. There's lots of other cool stuff besides the beach. I gotta say, no, yeah, I really do like the beach because the beach is very very calming and it's like I don't know. However, I do like going to like national parks. Yeah, I like parks the great and like the mountains. Great Smoky Mountains. Come yeah. on. Gatlinburg is great. Love it. So yeah, so that's what I've got on the ocean. The space of the The space of the earth. Yep. How cool is all Although, of that? Although not for much longer. Only about ten more years until they're done mapping, mapping. the whole floor. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to see how that turns out. I know, I'm really interested to see, like I said, like how this helps anthropology and mm-hmm. like more information about where we come from. And I hope they find Atlantis. Yeah. there, we, There's something on National Geographic about that that we can watch, actually. That would be cool. Um, but yeah, so that's what we've got on the ocean. Um, again, our coffee today was Peace Coffee's Tree Hugger Blend mm-hmm. uh, Dark Roast. You can find that at Target. Um, it's... Highly recommended. Yeah, um, nutty and adventurous, just like me. Yes, nutty and adventurous. <laughs> um, so I hope you guys enjoyed our topic today. I know I did. It yeah. was pretty pretty informative. Um, if you guys have any suggestions on topics to talk about or coffees to try, you can always send those to us. Uh, you can email us at datenightcoffeeshop at gmail.com. Or hit us up on our Instagram. Yeah, which hit is- us up on Instagram, date night at the coffee shop. Um, use our hashtag... We have a hashtag, right? We do have a what hashtag. What is that hashtag? Same as our name, date night. At so the hashtag, hashtag date night at the coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, hit us up. Uh, let us know what you think. Give us any suggestions you might have. Um, we've got some photos on there of, of an unboxing that we're going to, some coffee that we're going to try next. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is exciting. Um, but yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this. I know I did. Um, again, thanks for joining us on our date night. Uh, Again, I'm Bart. I'm Sam. And thanks again, guys. Bye. Bye.